This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. So much to get to, but let's understand what's going on in the trade today and what we have to look forward to this week, Scarlett. We are going to set the Business Week agenda. We've got Gina Martin-Adams with us, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us from New Jersey, as does Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor for Bloomberg. He's also in the Garden State. So, Dave, quickly set the stage for us. Uh, What's underneath this trade? Well, you look at the 11 main industry groups in the S&P 500, and it, it looks rather familiar. Technology stocks kind of leading the way. Uh, you know, you look at the consumer discretionary category, which is basically Amazon.com, and it's up. You know, so uh, kind of a familiar story. Communication services, which is, you know, Facebook and uh, Alphabet, the owner of Google, uh, also higher. And, you know, it's really their week, those kinds of companies, because, you know, you, you talk about the, the $4 trillion companies in the S&P 500 based on market value. You have three of them uh, you know, reporting on the same day coming up on Thursday. I'm calling it a triple-A afternoon because you get Alphabet, you know, the owner of Google, and uh, Amazon.com and Apple. It just goes to show you what kind of week it's going to be. Uh, you know, cl- something like a third of the uh, S&P 500 companies reporting today. Pretty quiet on that front, but it really does pick up tomorrow and carries through the rest of the week. So, you know, it isn't just about the Fed policymakers getting together. It's about what companies are going to have to say on their results. Absolutely. Technology is going to be front and center this week. But it's interesting because when I look at the most actively traded stocks by value and I look at foreign common stocks, nine out of the 10 most actively traded stocks are all gold miners or precious metals miners. And that speaks to the rally that we've seen in gold prices. Gina, material stocks uh, certainly in favor right now as people continue to bid gold and silver prices higher. Do we have any sense of whether this will be reflected in their earnings? Uh, probably not. I mean, I think it's a bit early to expect that the companies are actually going to produce earnings results as a result of the price action in gold. So I do think that the materials sector is most likely to be one of the weaker sectors within the S&P 500 in terms of actual output um, from an earnings perspective. That said, I do think that if you start looking at value names in the S&P 500, you could have an opportunity for a lot of beats to expectations. So if you think about the sort of value styles in a broader set, I've got 15 stocks on a list of stocks in our high value bucket, as well as the S&P 500 peer value index that report this week. All of them are expected to have just really, really weak earnings, just kind of tremendous declines, some of them even with negative earnings. And as a group, they're starting to experience positive estimate revision, which is very different than what Dave was talking about with the big heavyweight tech companies facing a completely alternative with higher expectations going into their earnings. It's less likely that they can sustain those expectations, where some of the value stocks actually might be able to beat um, very, very low forecasts. 
And so, Gina, I believe you told us last week this is the single big, big, busiest excuse me, week for earnings, right, this quarter, this week that we're headed into? It is. Yeah, but, there's not going to be any rest for the weary this week. Yeah. So any, I mean, what's the key theme for you beyond what you were just describing and, and the, the tech importance here? Yeah, so it's a combination of things. I mean, I think one thing that happened last week that really, quite frankly, surprised us is for the first time in a long time, despite the fact that every tech stock that reported earnings last week beat expectations, price performance was negative. So I, I think I want to watch that really carefully. Can tech stocks actually live up to expectations, or have we gotten a little bit ahead of our skis, and investors are going to sell the news on both tech as well as healthcare and some of the growthy stocks? Um, the opposite may occur with respect to value. I think beyond earnings season, there's more than just earnings, even though this is the heaviest week of earnings and next week is the second heaviest week. We're obviously also contending with a Fed policy meeting this week, and we're contending with this fiscal package, which we keep bumping around um, as a possibility right. or not a possibility. And, and, you know, I think that that has the prospect of, of creating a little bit of turmoil for stocks as well. So, Dave, when we talk about the Fed meeting this week, do you sense a change in tone or in sentiment when it comes to what the Fed will likely say? Obviously, the environment around us has worsened with the increase of cases across much of the United States. Um, how much of that is reflected in people's expectations of what they expect to hear from Jay Powell? You know, I haven't really run across a whole lot on that score at this point. You know, I mean, given that uh, there's sort of a policy direction that's been set, you know, near zero interest rates and, and, and some bond buying, though they backed off lately in terms of actual purchases, you know, trying to throw money at the economy where they can. I mean, it, it does seem like, if anything, they'll try and redouble those efforts. But at least you know, the policy direction has been set. And what we may get uh, Wednesday just will, will sort of reinforce where we are when it comes to uh, what the Fed's up to. All right. All right. Well, thank you both so much. Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joined us from New Jersey, as did Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor. This is Bloomberg Business Week. We are keeping an eye, obviously, on the virus, those cases continuing to rise across the country, and testing, Scarlett, certainly front of mind. And we need to understand how it works, where it works, when it works, and how it's all going to be executed. We've got the perfect person to talk about that. Neil DiCrescenzo. Crescenzo, did I say that right, Neil? That's right, Jason. Thanks. Close. All right, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, you're the CEO of Change Healthcare, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Uh, so, tell us about testing here. Like, where are we? How should we be thinking about it, especially when it comes to a typical local community? How's it happening? Well, Jason, I think you made a very important point. Is that there really is maybe not a typical community? There's a lot of uh, different types of communities in this country, and what you know, people didn't really perhaps realize prior to the pandemic that only about 55% of lab orders are actually submitted electronically today. And as you can imagine, that's particularly challenging in a rural or a poorer community. So, um, what we really focus on with our network, where you know we move around about 15 billion healthcare transactions per year, one of the largest clinical financial administrative networks in the country is really helping the doctors order these lab tests and making sure that people can get them in the most convenient and fast uh, fast process possible in order, of course, critically, as we've heard particularly recently, to get their results back. And so we've made access to our nationwide lab network free for all uh, physicians. 
And we have over 1,400 labs and over 100 providing COVID testing on the network. Neil, is there a difference between people going to their primary doctor or to an urgent care center or to the hospital to get COVID tests? Because I remember reading that ultimately they all get processed at the same couple of labs. Well, I think, Scott, that's a great question because what does that really come down to? It comes down to convenience and people's comfort level with either maybe their primary care physician or an urgent care center they're familiar with or some other site, whether it's a Walgreens, a CVS, Mm. et cetera. Um, And, you know, right now we've got about 36 states that are testing less than the 35% recommended level with the CDC. So unless people go in to get tested, they're clearly not going to get the results and we're not going to be able to impact not only the testing rates, but the positivity rates through treatment and contact uh, tracing afterwards. That's been such a challenge in many states. And so if people have a choice of where to go, where should they go? Well, I think it really comes down to the individual. Uh, You know, I think that uh, the testing is getting obviously continued to have different sites, additional types of sites. And it's going to come down to, you know, what people are able to do in terms of the convenience for them, what they're dealing with in their personal lives, but making sure that uh, it's done in a way that the results are provided back to them as fast as possible and utilizing the lab network that we and others have had in place, you know, frankly, for decades. But it just wasn't really, of course, uh, operating at this level and with this degree of focus. You know, one of the things that's important for people to realize is one of the key priorities over the next few months is also going to be trying to figure out how to get at-home testing. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we focused on is connecting our network to these sort of fast-growing companies like You Do Test that provide home tests. But we're now seeing the industry leaders like Mayo Clinical Labs, LabCorp, Quest, the big lab companies, as they're often thought of, beginning to develop these tests. So you can imagine the paradigm shift we'll have if we're able to get at-home testing that's reliable that will really facilitate people, particularly trying to get back to work or kids going to school. Well, speaking of kids going back to school, um, for students who are going back to university campuses, Jason and I were talking earlier about how some schools will say that they will be testing students, what, fairly frequently, twice a week, for instance. What kind of what kind of problems or challenges do you foresee in being able to execute that, uh, not just on one campus, but across the nation? Yeah, it's really a lot of the challenges we've seen, Scarlett, throughout the pandemic, which is really one of infrastructure. I think all of these universities will point out that they weren't really set up or contemplating doing this ever in the past. And so, you know, what we really look at is how can we take infrastructure we've had in place for the traditional settings and expand them, these sorts of settings, including universities. You know, down in Florida, when the pandemic started, They have uh, 67 counties with clinics that they wanted to obviously leverage as part of the testing. And just in a few days, we connected them with the commercial labs because we had most of the infrastructure in place to help with the challenges that they, you know, continue to have, like many of these hotspot states in Florida. And I think, you know, universities, very unusually, as you can imagine, are now having to contemplate how they do that as well prior to school starting. And so last question for you, Neil, what's the sort of technology solution that sort of sticks with us here now that all of this tech has been thrown? I mean, your background was having a big job over the health sector at Oracle. I do wonder how how are our lives going to be different even beyond COVID testing when it comes to tech? Only got about a minute left here. Well, there's going to be a lot more digital data, Jason, that's going to be used for a variety of purposes. So I'd say it's really three things, more data more connectivity, and the interoperability 
around that data and connectivity to enable people to basically better maintain or improve their health, or in this case, deal with a crisis situation like the pandemic. Right. A lot to uh, learn. We're going to be dealing with this a lot. I have a feeling, especially in this race to a vaccine, we've got to get tested to get back to work, as you point out, and back to school. Neil Crescenzo is the CEO of Change Healthcare, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Well, let's get into the world of sports. John Stashauer joins us, Bloomberg Sports Reporter on the remote line from Connecticut. All right, so John, we saw some baseball over the weekend. We're going to see less baseball tonight. How in danger is the baseball season given these positive tests with the Miami Marlins? Yeah, we don't really know. I think we have to wait for more test results. I think we're at 11 Miami Marlins players right now. There was, I think, a report of 12. The latest I heard was 11 plus a couple coaches. One player first positive test, I guess, last Friday, and it spread through the team, and they are still in Philadelphia. The Marlins were supposed to come home last night or then this morning. They still haven't done it. They're waiting on these test results. I mean, if it stays right there at 11 Miami Marlins, you know, these teams have extra players uh, at an alternate campsite. They can bring them up, but who knows? You know, they, they played the Braves last week in Atlanta, and the Braves were in New York. They played the Mets. Now the Mets are in Boston to play the Red Sox, so... Who knows how long this, how much this thing can spread around. So, John, 11 out of a squad of how many? And therefore, does it mean that the Braves need to get tested as well and the Phillies need to get tested too? Yeah, I would think absolutely. And, you know, as we just talked about, there's 30. Normally, our team in past years has had 25. They were going to expand it to 26 anyway. Mm-hmm. They're starting with 30 players. Uh, and then they have like another 30, like there's no minor leagues this year, but they have like a reserves of about 30 players. So yeah, they can replace these 11 players with, with other players, but yeah, we have to wait on the test results. Are there going to be more Marlins? Like you said, the Braves, the Phillies, the Phillies was supposed to host the Yankees tonight. That game has been postponed because the Yankees would have been going into the locker room that the Marlins had just used this past weekend. So they didn't want that to happen, obviously. And obviously, there's a ton of money on the line. I mean, not to be too crass about it here, John. I mean, baseball basically sort of limped over the finish line to get these 60 games. They opted not to bubble themselves, as some of the other leagues have done. And a lot of folks have a lot to lose, players and owners alike here, if we if this season doesn't go on. Oh, there's no question about it. And a lot of people are surprised we haven't heard yet from the commissioner, Rob Manfred. I assume we will at some point today. To, you know, Maybe he's waiting on these these test results. But it's a good point you make about the bubble because the other sports are doing that. The, the hockey players have arrived in Canada. They're getting ready to have playoff games this weekend. Um, the NBA players are in this bubble in Orlando. The latest test results from NBA players were no positive tests. So baseball talked about doing a bubble, changed their mind. Some people thought maybe they were thought they were smart because they were going to go to Florida and Arizona, two places you don't want to be right now. But no bubble, a lot of travel, and you know that's why Toronto, the, the Canadian government didn't let the Blue Jays play in Toronto because they didn't want players traveling in and out of the, the country. And my understanding, John, as well, is that these Marlins players got tested before they played their game against the Phillies, right? And then they got their results after the game, so they went into that game, presumably eleven of them. Uh, testing positive and right now in terms of context the league is trying to play when the case number in the country is higher than when sports overall shut down in march it's pretty stunning when you think about the broader picture 
Well, I mean, if you think back to when this all started, they remember there was one NBA player who tested right. positive, and it was all like, oh my god, you know. And now, yeah, they're they're playing with with all kinds of players having the virus, testing positive. Um, you know, there was the report originally as of this morning. It was that four Marlins had tested positive, and you could argue maybe they shouldn't have played a game yesterday. They actually won the game yesterday in Philadelphia, but then they got more test results, and now we're up to 11. And I have to think uh, Roger Goodell and others in the National Football League are watching this in a very, very worried way, John. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Football is a big question mark. They can't have a bubble, you know. I mean, there's just too too large a roster, so many coaches and all that. So, you know, it's such a contact sport. And some of the college players were, were having workouts and we were hearing about, you know, dozens of, of positive mm-hmm. tests as a result of that. College football is a whole other story, you know, with the kids who are not, they may not even have classes or they really have football games. So I'm sure the NFL is going to try. You talked before about the money involved. So yeah. the NFL is going to give it a go. But I think there's a lot of questions about whether it'll work. All right, John Stashauer, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Uh, Great context and uh, keeping us up to date on a story, Scarlett, that obviously all of us are watching. You and I are big sports fans, and it was great to see baseball back, but who knows, maybe short-lived, or maybe they will find a way through this. Hard to say. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, let's dive into the magazine, if we can, Bloomberg Business Week. This is a story that's on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com, one of our faves, Hema Parmar, she joins us on the phone from New York City, along with Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us from Massachusetts. You know, I love talking about hedge funds and fees and money in Wall Street, Joel. So tee this up for us. Uh, so the the moment that um, Nishant, who's, who's one of his uh, co-authors on this, kind of spoke up about it, I was like, oh, please tell me more. And obviously the 2 and 20 uh, uh business model has been um, a mainstay of the hedge fund in this industry. Um, but we're, we're beginning to see uh, that get trimmed. And, um, and it's not just a little trimming, it's a big trim. Uh, Himma, what did you guys uh, discover as you uh, dug into the numbers behind the story? Yeah, so um, in our story, we, we were looking at the fee changes over hedge fund fees have been falling for a number of years. But what we're seeing now is not only are they continuing to fall, but you're seeing a lot of um, creative things that hedge funds are offering, more concessions, um, such things as one fund's offering to cover all investor losses. That's almost never heard of. Um, one fund is doing away with performance fees until they hit a threshold. Some firms are lowering their fees in exchange for locking up capital for more time. And what this is reflective of is um, uh, a decline in some of the assets that we're seeing as investors have been pulling away from hedge funds a little bit and um, demanding uh, lower fees as performance has waned and just hasn't compared to the kind of returns we were seeing 20 years ago. Okay, so when we talk about 2 and 20, it's 2% management fees and 20% is the cut of profits. A lot of people have said that 2 and 20 has been out of play for a long time. There have been modifications to that. But in your story, Hema, you also talk about this 1 or 30 fee model. What does that even mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 1 or 30, it's um, been championed by, by Alborn. And basically what it means is in a good year as a fund, you could charge 30% 
of the performance and no assets, no fees on the asset side. But in a bad year, you would charge just 1% of assets. And what that does is it equals out um, the fees that you can charge and makes it more attractive to potential investors. And this has become increasingly popular with um, a number of hedge funds and it's becoming um, something that I think uh, allocators are asking for too. So, Hema, um, when, when you think about, you know, how long uh, the hedge fund industry has gotten, um, gotten, you know, away with this, this has been really the, 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 the normal for, for decades now. Um, and obviously, this has some profound impact, um, especially for investors. Uh, so what are investors actually saying about this change in tactic? Because, I mean, it seems almost like it could have happened a decade ago um, mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, you know, is it is it all happening too late? And and how, how sticky is this money ultimately going to be uh, among institu- institutional investors? Well, investors, I think, are happy. Um, they are able to um, negotiate and get better fees. The bigger the allocator is, the more influence they have, the better fees they can negotiate for themselves. Um, even the numbers that we've mentioned in our story, um, an allocator could an investor could demand an even more preferential treatment for themselves if they have a big ticket investment that they're making. Um, and, and the fees have been declining as hedge fund performance has been souring, if we look at it as a whole. But I think investors over the past few years have been getting particularly frustrated. And as we're seeing this year, um, this, this environment has been harder for funds to trade in. The performance hasn't been so great. And if you look broadly across the space, there have been some outliers. But um, you're seeing it, it's just a much, much difficult fundraising environment, particularly for smaller managers. Um, some of the money has gone towards the bigger funds as you know, it's, once you get to being a $20 billion fund, um, it's, it's a lot harder to lose that stature. But for a smaller funds that are just kind of working their way up and trying to gain assets, it's an incredibly difficult time. Those are the ones that especially are having to rethink about, rethink their fee model and their fee structure. So, Hema, when you look at this story, this sort of really nice data-driven trend story against a lot of the breaking news, great scoops that you've had over the past couple years around big investors saying, you know what, big hedge fund investors saying, I'm just going to do the family office thing or I'm going to shut it down a little bit. I mean, those have to be somehow synthesized, right? Yes, and we've seen, um, especially over the, this year and last year, a number of firms pivot from being a, a, a big-name hedge fund into um, a, a family office, if we look at John Paulson, just, just this, this month, I believe. Um, and so that is that does speak to the broader trend that we're seeing. Also, a lot of big-name hedge funds like Paul Tudor Jones's firm and Alan Howard, they've had to cut fees in recent years. So you are seeing um, the old school guard, the the big titans of the industry also facing this reckoning that we're seeing in the space, um, having to adjust, having to be more creative, as particularly fundamental firms that haven't adapted to becoming more quantitative or included more unique trading methods. They've struggled if they have failed to do that. And that has also been part of the factors if we look at some of the firms that have closed down or only traded their own internal assets as well. You know, the thing that reminds me of uh, the bigger picture here is that hedge funds really Mm -hmm. never got their mojo back after the financial crisis. Um, Mm -hmm. Central bank intervention increased all the correlation between the different assets. It reduced volatility. Yet we did have volatility uh, in the first quarter of this year. And 
it was not a good first quarter for hedge funds. Why not? Why was the volatility not the right kind of volatility? Right. So you hedge funds focus on a specific kind of volatility. And sometimes if it's too short term and too um, unexpected, they don't they, they find that a lot harder to trade, especially systematic funds that are computer-driven. Um, they need a little bit more time to catch up with the spikes in volatility. And so if it's over a short blip and then at, at random spurts, that's a lot harder to trade than a longer period of volatility over a couple months, which then you can um, t- make more opportunistic trades. Um, if it's a sudden shock, as we've seen, that has been a lot harder. So that's why I think you've seen a lot of struggles in, in March, which... Most firm, firms did, did terribly that, that month. And if you look at our chart um, and our story, we take we you know have a, a, a line graph that shows the S and P as it as it compares to a hedge fund performance. And since two thousand and eight, you'll see broadly that hedge funds have trailed the S and P increasingly with a broader spread um, compared to prior to two thousand and eight. Yeah, sort of defeats the whole purpose of all those fees, <laughs> if you ask me. All right, Emma Parmar, thank you so much. Great piece of reporting. Check it out on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. Not surprisingly, one of the most read. Hema, hedge fund reporter for Bloomberg, on the phone from New York City. Follow her at Parmar Hema for all of her scoops. Our thanks as well to Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joined us from Massachusetts. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close on this Monday afternoon. Jason Kelly and Scarlett Fu here with you. And we're joined by Burt White, Chief Investment Officer of LPL Financial. On the phone from Charlotte. Burt, really nice to have you with us. Uh, first of all, what's going on down in Charlotte? Uh, I'm guessing it is probably about as hot as it is here in the New York City area. But how's everything going with virus cases and all that? How does it feel down there? Well, it is hot. And the good news is that uh, air conditioning is helping when you're staying at home. Uh, but no doubt about it, there is uh, you know, uh, an upward trend of, of nervousness around some of the cases that are coming through in this regional area. The South in general mm-hmm. um, has been a little bit quick to, uh, to reopen. Um, it's all that quick reopening, and now we're beginning to start to see an increase in cases. And so uh, being careful is, uh, is really uh, what's happening here down, down here in Charlotte. Well, sounds like you're doing well, and I'm glad to hear that that's the case. Um, when you look at what's happening around you, and then you look at the stock market, is it a, is there a disconnect, or does it make sense to you? Well, I've never seen the market, the stock market, and the economy be as disparate um, in their absolute results. Um, I do think that's the real watch out for investors, though. I, I think investors want to look at things and determine whether or not it's good or it's bad. You know, like so far, earnings is down 43% year over year. Is that good or is that bad? And so the reality is that's not the metric the market nor the economy sort of looks at. It's really, is it better or worse? And I think by and large, from the market view and the economic view, things are getting better, uh, both. And so to some degree, the metric that matters most is actually in harmony between the market and um, and the economy. It's just the absolute levels that are so disparate that's really got 
seems pretty uh, pretty confusing. And so, Bert, how big of a role does the Fed play here, the don't fight the Fed mantra, the market by all accounts, at least partially was up today, given a sentiment around what we may hear or may not hear candidly from Jay Powell and his colleagues on Wednesday. Where does the Fed fit into this equation? I think the Fed, frankly, is the, is the most important uh, voice and the most important words. Right now, that's the backstop. Right now, that is the first relay runner. You know, I oftentimes try to talk about these recoveries as being relay races. Um, and what you need is you actually need to, to have a strong runner, and then they got to pass the baton to somebody else. And the Fed is always the first runner in these recoveries, always the first runner. And they've run hard, and they have run long. And what I think you're going to hear the Fed say, which they have been saying the last few meetings, is it's time for someone else to take this baton. And they're try- they've been trying to give this baton really to fiscal policy. And by and large, they've run pretty well. And we'll probably see some more running there. My guess is you will hear Powell and you will hear the Fed say uh, that they are going to continue to be very dovish. They're going to continue to support this. I think they're going to hint to, to low rates uh, for longer. I don't know what, you know, we've been saying that the Fed is lower for longer. I don't know what longer than longer is. Mm-hmm. But whatever that is, that is what they're lower for. And so uh, I think you're going to hear more of that news. Yeah, people have interpreted that to mean lower forever, or at least in our lifetime. Um, I I like the analogy of passing the baton to fiscal policy. And we've seen how fiscal policymakers are are kind of stumbling getting out of the gate. They can't quite get there. We know the Republicans will be proposing something in the next hour or two. Um, What does it mean in terms of how much it's going to affect day-to-day trading over the next couple of weeks, because we're probably not going to get any kind of agreement today, tomorrow, but this will be something that's negotiated on. We're going to get lots of headlines that will conflict with each other. And it's, you know, we're going to go through all the machinations before something eventually happens. Is the stock market going to be held hostage to that? Or do people just look past that and assume something's going to come out of it? We'll just, we'll just go ahead and, and, and price in the fact that it'll get resolved. Well, I, I think the stock market's going to try to bully a bit of a response. I wouldn't be surprised if um, if the market doesn't get some of the uh, more positive gearing, forward-looking rhetoric on this. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look positive. It doesn't look like it's going to happen in the next week or two. I think you'll see the market throw a, t- a slight temper tantrum. Wouldn't be surprised if you see a couple of uh, sharp down days as the market just sort of sends its message that this is really important. This is the next runner in this relay race. It's got to step up and do that. And right now, I think sometimes Washington needs to be uh, shaken just a bit. Uh, they got to shake that sugar tree just a bit. And the market's not afraid to do that. You saw it do that in March. You saw it do it in April. You saw it do it some in May. It will do it if it needs to. I think you'll probably see that happen if, um, if the rhetoric that comes out of Washington is a positive and forward-looking. So, Bert, I think some of the research that you and your team have done, you know, talk about this swoosh, this Nike swoosh shaped recovery. Um, has that sort of been your consistent view or how has that evolved over time? And what does the latest round of earnings tell you about that in terms of your confidence there? Yeah, that, that's been our view uh, really throughout this. You know, the reality is we've felt more confident around the direction and the slope that has been where we've been largely most confident. I think trying to trying to get levels and timing is harder, um, sure. but I think direction and slope has been really uh, where we've been most confident, and we're we're still seeing this uh, this Nike swoop type of move. Um, the reality is 
coming off bottoms and extremes, it is uh, relatively common to get a very fast, sharp move. Um, but I think here going forward, it's going to be a lot harder for those next gains, um, both in economic gains and others. And on top of that, um, you've got a fair amount of concern around the election and then also the increase in some of the cases we've seen here um, after some of these early reopenings. And so all that mixed together, I think the next part of this recovery is going to be the harder part of this recovery um, and therefore sort of lends itself to slower growth, but still an upward trajectory. Okay, slower growth, but still an upward trajectory. Is that better or worse than what we can expect from Europe? Because there's been a lot more talk about how Europe might provide better opportunities right now, especially after all those countries managed to come together and unanimously agree on this 750 billion euro rescue package. The Republicans can't figure out what they want to do, but you have 27, 28 countries in Europe coming up with a solution. In 30 seconds or less, Bert. Well... I think in 30 seconds or less, uh, the reality is that, that Europe's got some other issues. Uh, they've got deficits. They've got a ton of populism that's going to continue to drive that. And so we think that's going to continue to weigh on growth there. Um, we think the United States and to some degree China are really the two places that you're going to see the quickest bounce back here economically. All right. You nailed it. Great job. Thank you so much. Bert White, Chief Investment Officer for LPL Financial, joining us on the phone from Charlotte. Stay safe down there. Stay safe and cool. Uh, Same can be said for those of us here in the Northeast right now. Record temperatures sweeping through New York and Boston, as we heard earlier. And for days to come, too, Jason. I know. No, it's, it's unrelenting. It's unrelenting. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.